My guest today is Danny Jones, who has done numerous projects in three major music cities, Memphis, Muscle Shoals, and New Orleans. He has worked with some incredible artists, too. Thanks for doing the podcast, Danny. Well, hey, I, I was just trying to remember. I mean, I've known your name forever. We have met, haven't we? Yeah, I have known your name, too. If we did meet, it must have been in the 70s. Unfortunately, I don't remember the 70s at all. <laughs> I do seem to remember that you were to Kiva. That might have been before the name change. And, and I worked there off and on. Oh, really? Throughout, throughout the eighties, I was never on staff there, but but I did a good bit of work there. And of course, even going before it was Kiva, you know, it was Sounds of Memphis, right? And I did uh, what I did the Calculated X record there, and the Creed record, and and the Ransom record, and yeah, and then I worked. Uh, I was an assistant. I worked on. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, when he was there, and I worked on the uh, Great Balls of Fire movie soundtrack. Did you? That must have been fun. Yeah, and uh, let's see what... Oh, I worked on a Barquet's record there as well. Um, oh, and there was sort of... And, and I don't think this record was ever finished, but uh, Albert King recorded there. But uh, and I'll tell you who was kind of in charge of that was uh, Danny Green. So Danny could actually give you a lot more information on that, you know, th than me. Yeah, Danny Green was writing songs while the sessions were going on. Yeah, well, you know, I wasn't involved very much in that project at all. But, yeah, I, I knew that Danny was, and Danny had a lot to do. Uh, well, I mean, it seemed like. But uh, Danny was certainly a lot more involved than me. But I do remember Pat also being involved in that. Yeah, I believe Pat Taylor was uh, the engineer or producer on that project. And in fact, it was uh, Pat's idea for Albert to record Danny's song. <laughs> the first time I met Albert, I, I had just been back in Memphis. And, and, you know, as you know, I worked for Alan Toussaint. And Alan had produced an album uh, on Albert right before. Matter of fact, they were finishing it up when I started at C-Saint. And so just to be what I thought would be some kind of a little connection communication. And I said, well, hey, yeah, I used to work for Alan Toussaint. And Albert starts yelling and screaming at me. And and said, man, Alan, last time I was in New Orleans, Alan didn't even come out and see me. He went blah, blah, blah. And I thought, and you know. Albert was not a small man. Uh, he was obviously upset. <laughs> and I just thought, boy, what a great first impression I just made. But then years later, uh, when Stevie Ray died in that helicopter crash, I, I got a call from Channel 5 that asked me. Uh, I'd actually been in Chicago the day before, and I didn't get back in town till late that night. And, and the phone call actually woke me up. And, you know, they asked, you know, if I was me. And I said, yeah. And they said, well, listen, I, I want to get your thoughts on, on Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, oh, haven't you heard? Heard what? Oh, well, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but Stevie was killed last night. I said, oh, man. 
And I said, would you come down and do an interview with us? And I said, well, yeah. I said, there's probably better people than me. And they said, and I can't remember who I was talking to. They said, well, well, you did work with him, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. Well, would you please come down and do an interview? Yes. So anyway, we met down at Kiva, and they they only interviewed two people, me and Albert. And after the interview, Albert and I went into the to the kitchen, you know, there at Kiva, and we sat down. And, and man, I saw an entirely different side of Albert because he was he loved Stevie. And. And, and you know, I could tell you know he he was really touched and and hurt by that. And I only saw Albert a couple of times after that. But boy, the whole attitude was was different. We sort of made a connection that day. Speaking of Alan Toussaint, when I interviewed him in 1975, and I asked if he pronounced his name Toussaint or Toussaint, he said Toussaint. So I asked, why is the studio called Sea Saint and not Sea Saint? <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> well, you know, I asked him one time how he wanted to pronounce it. You know, is it Toussaint or Toussaint? And, and he said, either. But whenever he said it, it was Toussaint. And the rest of his family, uh, his son, Reggie, and I are still real close friends. And... He introduces himself as Reggie Toussaint, but a lot of people say Toussaint, and, you know, as, as I just mentioned, Alan told me, he said, it's either way, so he didn't mind, <laughs> but, but I, I understand your, your point there, Toussaint. I really liked him. He, he allowed me to use his studio for interviewing Melissa Manchester when she had Midnight Blue out. I needed a piano, and he had a white baby grin. Well, me too. You know, I was very, very fortunate and and blessed to get to be there, you know, when I was. And, I mean, Alan Toussaint, to me, I mean, he was my boss. He was my friend. uh, And he's definitely one of my heroes. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure that it's certainly professionally that I have any more respect for anyone in the business uh, than I do for Alan. You know, I just absolutely loved him because of where I was in New Orleans. I mean, I got to, to meet and, and a lot of times work with almost every person of notoriety in New Orleans there you know i mean earl king was a friend uh you know i knew all the meters you know i worked with them uh, the nevels uh, arma thomas uh johnny adams uh walter wolfman washington uh ernie cato uh oh gosh i don't know who i'm leaving out but uh i mean you know everybody came through those doors i never knew who was going to be there when I showed up at the studio, because people would sometimes just drop by. And it, uh, you know, I was so, so thankful. You know, I moved there from Memphis, and, uh, you know, Memphis certainly has a larger recording community uh, than New Orleans did. 
But uh, so it wasn't like I'd never been around, you know, record making people before. But I don't. New Orleans was also very different than Memphis. This the the whole approach uh, to making records was was very different. And but uh, yeah, you know, even when I moved back, I think it took me a year just to uh, stop talking about how much I missed the food. That's where I was introduced to crawfish, soft shell crabs, basically real seafood. Well, and, and you, you know, it's not. It wasn't always the big famous places. You know, it's, it's sometimes the places that weren't so famous that, you know, you just go to. And, I mean, there was this little place down the street from Sea Saint, and, and it, well, you were there, so you know it was right in the middle of a residential area. And, oh, man, their, their shrimp poor boys were just incredible. And, I mean, this place didn't even have a name out front. Their door was locked. You have to go to the door and knock on the door, and it was a, a one-way see-through glass, and they pushed the button and let you in. And you'd go in. It was just kind of this neighborhood bar restaurant, but, gosh, these sandwiches were, you know, just incredible. You know, there was a grocery store right across the street on the side street, and I, I didn't do this often, but... I mean, they had f French bread was baked fresh every morning and delivered to that store. So it was one of those, if you wanted to make a sandwich, you go over and, you know, you got the butcher back in the area. He's, you know, with a slicer there slicing off meat uh, to put on a sandwich on bread that was baked that morning. And, oh, man, I, I just, I love that. And then Alan, Alan had this this lady that uh, I I don't know what her title was at her house, but but she cooked all of his food because Al, Alan lived by himself. Uh, and Sandra, I mean, she would fix these meals and bring them down to the studio at times, and it's just like, oh my gosh! And then Alan would call me every, every once in a while. Uh, I'd be working on something with him, and it would just be me, either I'm mixing or doing some kind of production work. And uh, most of the time I worked with him was in the evening. But he'd call me every once in a while. He'd say, Danny, are you hungry? And I believe me, I was always going to be hungry whenever he called. And I said, well, yes, sir. He said, I'll be by to get you. So he'd drive. He only lived about 15 minutes or so from the studio. So he'd, he'd come by in his rolls and, and pick me up and take me back to the house, and uh, we'd have a meal. And when we were through, then, you know, he'd drive me back to the studio. When I was living in the French Quarter, I went to watch some of the Mardi Gras parades, and I was in this little bar on the parade route when Paul and Linda McCartney walked through the front door. I was floored. Paul, Paul went around the room shaking hands with everybody and spending a few minutes with each one of them. I, you know, I only hear very positive stories about him. Uh, you know, a friend of mine worked with him last year uh, in Austin. Uh, he performed a, a Austin, uh, what is that, Austin City Limits Festival, ACLU. ACLU? 
Okay, whatever it's called. Uh, but he was telling me, and a friend of mine has a recording truck, so they did all the multi-track recording that ultimately was mixed and, and released, uh, was streamed online. But uh, he told me that McCartney just went around and just was introducing himself to, like, all the stagehands. And all, you know, he said, because some of, you know, some of my people were up there, uh, you know, setting things up. And McCartney comes and he introduces himself like he needs an introduction. You know, he said, hi, I'm Paul McCartney. And and just shaking hands with people. And, you know, that's pretty doggone cool. That was my one and only Beatles sighting. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, uh, I would have loved to... Oh, I, I never met any of them. I've seen Ringo a couple of times because you know he was around Memphis for a while, and uh, but I never. Uh, I sat close to him one night, but you know I thought, man, I'm not going to bother this guy, so so I didn't. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. But but you know I, I saw McCartney in concert, you know, and I was totally blown away. You know, he's so, so great. But, you know, I, I'm i not going to say that we became close friends, but there, I was a, a couple of times I was with Jeff Emmerich, you know, the the engineer that recorded, uh, well, he did Sgt. Pepper's, uh, Abbey Road. He did four albums on the Beatles. And, boy, he had nothing but wonderful things to say about McCartney. Now, I'm not sure about this, but I believe you worked with a very good friend of mine. Have you ever worked with Wendy Moten? I have. As a matter of fact, and she will verify this, uh, her first recordings I engineered. What it was, I was producing uh, two brothers for Art Gilliam. You know, Art at uh, Art owns... Oh, what's that station in Memphis? The Black Gospel Station. W- WDIA? No. WLOK. WLOK, yes. Art owns WLOK, and I was producing uh, Two Brothers and uh, Vince and Marvin Ellison. And and we were getting ready to do background vocals, and I had a couple singers of mine, and uh, Vince says, hey, listen, I got this friend. She's great. I really want to use her on backgrounds. But whenever I hear that, I'm always like, Okay, well, let's give her a shot. It was Wendy. It was Wendy Moten, and she came in and uh, and she sang. Uh, I had my wife sing it. My wife's a great singer, and and she just did a wonderful job. And she and I have you know been friends ever ever since. We I haven't actually spoken to her in real time in a while, but you know we are Facebook friends. We do comment you know, every once in a while, but, uh, Wendy's great. She's a wonderful person. And, you know, we have re- remained friends throughout the years. She's touring and doing studio work. She's touring or toured with Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, Martina McBride, Vince Gill. Hell, she's played the grand old Opry. Right. Right. Yeah. I've been keeping up with her. Yeah. She's, uh, you know, she's sort of like, the star that's not a star yet. Her best days are ahead of her for sure. I'm a big fan. I mean, she's a friend, but I'm a fan. While working in Memphis, did you ever cross paths with Steve Cobb? 
we have. Uh, I don't even remember the first time I met him. Uh, you know, the music community in Memphis is not really that large. So it's it's not hard to understand that lots of people know lots of other people. Uh, I think the only time, the only album I think I did with Steve was uh, on Shirley Brown. Uh, actually, Cy Rosenberg was the producer on that record. And uh, Shirley is on Malico, and, and she probably still is. And uh, Steve... Steve Cobb, we did that at a studio that used to be over in West Memphis called Delta Sound. Because I was, I was doing a lot of work over there. And uh, Cy called me, because I've worked for Cy off and on for years. I mean, like a good billion years. So he would call me call me every once in a while. Uh, matter of fact, the first time I worked over at Kiva, when it was actually Kiva, was on an artist that, uh, that Cy was managing. And actually, Joe Walsh was producing it, and Cy asked me if I would come over and mix it. And, and I said, well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, okay. First of all, Cy says, hey, will you come over and do this? They're going to pay me. And Joe Walsh is the producer, and I'm working with him. So it's just like, well, yeah. But, uh, but, but anyway, years later, uh, you know, he called me and I don't remember how we set it all up, but yeah, you know, Steve Cobb was was the bass player on that record, and uh, Lester Snell uh, was a keyboard player and arranger. And I'd worked with Lester before. Hey, boy, he's another real talent. That's a sweetheart of a guy. And uh, let's see, Steve Morgan played drums, and uh, Angelo Earl, I believe, played guitar. <laughs> was Joe still hiding his beer in the Coke machine? <laughs> well. Uh, you know, it was interesting. He, uh, first of all, I am, and, and at that time was a huge Joe Walsh fan. I had every Joe Walsh solo album, and uh, even going, going back to the James Gang, and of course the Eagles stuff. And, I, you know, it was actually pretty nice. Joe was, and, and I don't know why I didn't think he would be, but Joe was so, so savvy about everything. Why, for one moment, that I would think he would not be is beyond me. But, uh, you know, I got to ask him a few questions about things along the way. Because, you know, I mean, I have worked with a lot of named people. And, you know, you kind of have to be cool and not just be a fan when you know when you're working but at the same time i had a lot of questions and i was talking about some technical things that i remember hearing on some of his records and and i won't, I won't bore you with technical information but we were talking about reverbs or something and he was telling me about something that bill simsick always did and as soon as he said it i thought about the sound that i used to wonder how do they get that sound and all of a sudden it was like that's how they did that so it, you know, I actually liked working with him. Of course, you know, those were still his days of, uh, you know, he was a wild guy. You know, I worked with him on that project, and then I got a call back in. He was cutting uh, a demo on some song, and he called me in to, to engineer some sessions with him playing guitar. And, you know, I mean, 
come on, man. When you get to when you get the engineer Joe Walsh playing guitar, he sounded just like Joe Walsh. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, and you know that was after I had done. Uh, I had worked on the Stevie Ray Vaughan project, and it was like totally different. You know, Stevie had these massive guitar setups. I mean, it was huge. Uh, I mean, we had, when we were doing overdubs, he had 14 cabinets set up going through numerous. It was the loudest thing I've ever heard in a studio. And now they weren't all going at the same time, but bunches of them were and but then when we did joe he had no pedals it was just his les paul going through one of those if you remember those little bitty marshall stacks they look almost like toys and we had one microphone and joe actually set the mic up and he had one microphone on this little bitty marshall stack with no pedals or anything else and it was just like going from mammoth everything to you don't get any more minimal than than what joe was doing yeah and, and he's he sounded great yeah he's again he's joe walsh did you do any recording at american uh yeah yeah i, I didn't hang out there but yeah uh yeah but uh oh i remember I remember those days. You know, I mean, I'm originally from Jonesboro. My ninth and tenth grade years, uh, my family, had, my parents had split up, and my mom and my sisters and I moved to West Memphis. And this was back, what, what probably, gosh, I don't know, 65, 66, uh, in that time period. And all of the bands in Memphis would come over and play dances in West Memphis. I mean, I saw, oh gosh, who did I see? I mean, I saw the shortcuts, the guillotines, the box tops. When the let, when the letter was climbing up to number one, the marquees, uh, Village Sound. I mean, all those groups were, were playing over there, uh, either at the Armory or, or the Civic Center. And back then, there were dances pretty much every week and, and i always went so that's when i really got my uh education you know into memphis stuff and then i moved back to jonesboro i went to arkansas state but man i i, I could not wait to get back to memphis i you know i knew all that stuff that was going on and i wanted to be part of it so i was was thrilled and actually i had a band we actually ended up getting a contract with tommy cogbill over at american and uh, we did one single over there and it uh, we had a nice little review and billboard but you know the record basically did nothing but you know i got to meet all of those guys over there and i didn't i mean i was again thrilled about that but it wasn't till later on when i was a little more savvy that i thought Man, I wish I would have asked more questions. I wish I would have listened more. You, you know, because gosh, those guys were just, you know, a hit-making machine over there. 122 top 10 hits in three years. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, years later, I used to hire occasionally Gene Chrisman to play drums on some projects. Uh, Gene 
you know, Gene remained in Memphis longer than the rest of the guys. And I would use him back in the, I had a, a studio for a couple of years over on summer called the Music Factory. But we cut, uh, yeah, and that, uh, actually the stuff that I did there was, was what opened the door to me getting the job with Tucson. Because uh, they had heard some work that they, being Marshall and I mean Alan and his par- uh, partner Marshall Seahorn, uh, some stuff ended up on their desks, and they wanted to sign this group in Memphis that I had been recording. I was engineering it and producing a band called Grand Slam, and, and the band said, "Well, yeah, we would. We'd love to." to they said, "I want would like to sign your production contract. Come down to New Orleans and cut." And uh, the band leader, Steve Ingerson, uh, said, well, yeah, you know, actually, we'd love to do that. Uh, would it be possible for us to bring the engineer producer that we've been working with here in Memphis? And Marshall said, well, yeah, that'd be fine. As a matter of fact, he said, I'm kind of looking for another engineer. Do you think he'd be interested in relocating? And, and, yeah. Oh, no kidding. And, and you know, the music factory, we're, our lease was uh, was up. And our landlords were tripling the rent. Yeah, tripling the rent. And, you know, we were barely surviving as it was. So, you know, I closed it down. And so when that was offered, you know, they flew me down, put me out. They said, look, come down, hang out a couple of days. You know, you get to know us. We get to know you. And let's go from there. So that's that's what I did, and you know they offered me the job, and I said yes, I'd like to do it. So I moved to New Orleans. Oh, I was going to say that you know with the guys at American, I ended up producing uh, an album. Did you know Jerry Hayes was a country artist and songwriter? I don't believe so. Jerry had a couple of number one songs in country. Uh, Who's cheating? Who? But actually ended up being number one twice. Uh, first one was on uh, the girl Charlie McLean, and then and then Alan Jackson cut it back in the nineties and had a big hit. And he wrote "Rolling with the Flow" that uh, Charlie Rich did. But we used that American crew uh, when we cut that record because Jerry was a writer around American in those days. So so we used Reggie, Mike Leach. Uh, we didn't. Bobby Wood wasn't on it, but uh, Bobby Emmons was. And uh, we'll see, Gene, Mike, uh, Bobby Emmons, and, uh, and, and Reggie. And then I co-produced an album on Jerry Butler, also back around oh, sometime mid-'90s. And, and, and we used that same crew, except instead of uh, Bobby Emmons, we used uh, Marvell Thomas on that record. And I mean, those guys were great. And so unassuming, you would never think those are the guys that played on a gabillion hit records. You've done a lot of recording in a lot of different places. What do you think the difference is between Memphis music and music recorded someplace else? I think probably the biggest difference, and and you know, I mean, I'm not everywhere, and I know everybody has their own ways of doing things. But the thing I love so much about the whole what I consider to be the Memphis approach 
is you bring a song in with an artist, and when you have these great musicians, everybody just contributes. And you come up with something that, that uh, you know, is, is so, so special. You know, I, I got to spend also a little time in Muscle Shoals. And I had a really long conversation uh, with with Jimmy Johnson uh, one night, and because you know Jimmy was also an engineer, and just the way he would, uh, you know, ask him about certain sessions that they did, and I said, well, I always heard this, and you know, he set me straight on something. He said, no, 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 like I always heard that when a man loves a woman, you know, the Percy Sledge. I said, I I heard that maybe you, you know you cut that as a demo and you went in to recut it. And it wasn't as good as the original. And he said, no, we never cut that as a demo. We were going for it first time. And uh, I said, okay. And then he, uh, and, you know, I was just asking a few other questions. And uh, Roger Hawkins, uh, you know, I kind of knew. Those are the two that I knew the best. I never knew any of those guys really, really well. But, uh, you, you know, I am such a fan of the, uh, I guess, sort of the history of recording and the musicians. I mean, you know, Alan used to tell me, Al Toussaint used to tell me stories. You know, I, I get to hear these things from the Memphis guys. And, and you know, I knew obviously some of the guys that were at Stax and then the Muscle Shoals guys and then the New Orleans thing. Man, I'll tell you what. I mean, that to me is just, I am just thoroughly fascinated with all of that. Thanks again, Danny, for doing the podcast. Make sure you're with us next time when I'll be talking to Dan Penn on Memphis Music Interview, Memphis Music History Told from the Inside. I'm Mitch McCracken, and I hope to see you then. Memphis Music Interview is a get-cracking production.